I'm Caleb Bissinger, and this is a special episode of The Next Big Idea. Every summer when I was a kid, I used to make a bucket list of all the things I wanted to do before I went back to school. And the list would change from year to year, but there were always two constants. First, I wanted to go to a baseball game, which, now that I think about it, is kind of odd because I was not much of a baseball fan, and I certainly was not much of a baseball player. I remember one time after practice in middle school, my coach pulled me aside and said, have you ever had your eyes checked? But whatever the reason, I loved going to games as a kid. I think it was the atmosphere, the sounds, crack of the bat, chortle of the organ, the food, hot dogs, cotton candy, that irritable energy that pulses through the stadium when your team is doing poorly, and the way it's instantly transformed into raucous glee when they miraculously turn things around. It was all magical to me then, and it still is now. And the other constant on my summer bucket list was going to the movies. It was a chance to escape the dull drums of summer afternoons. It was also a chance to escape my unair conditioned house and spend a few hours in the cinema's cool darkness. So going to a game and going to the movies. To me, those are the essential summertime activities. And that's why I wanted to talk with filmmaker and retired ball player Ron Shelton because Ron found a way to combine those two summary activities into one. Unless you were a fan of minor league baseball's Appalachian League in the late 1960s, you probably don't know Ron as a baseball player. But I think there's a decent chance you may know him as the writer and director behind the 1988 rom-com Bull Durham. The film stars Kevin Costner as Crash Davis, a past his prime minor league catcher who's hired by the Durham Bulls to help a hotshot young pitcher, Nuke Lelouch, played by Tim Robbins, correct the imbalance between his million-dollar arm and his five-cent head. The movie begins when both men fall under the spell of a local woman named Annie, played by Susan Sarandon. Every season, she picks one ball player to sleep with, a selection that invariably results in that ball player having the best season of his career. Only this season, she picks the wrong guy. Bull Durham earned Ron an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay and was later named the greatest sports movie of all time by everyone from Sports Illustrated to my dad. And now, Ron has written a book about the film. It's called The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. What I loved about the book and why I wanted to talk to Ron is that it's one of the best accounts of an artist's process that I've ever read. Ron describes how he managed to sell the movie without a story, write the script without a plan, cast Kevin Costner after downing a few vodkas, and direct his first ever film without making a fool of himself. We talked about all of this and more. And to begin, I asked Ron about his childhood, which was about as far away from Hollywood as you can get. Ron grew up in a deeply religious household, one where movies, drink, and cursing were forbidden. So he says it was inevitable that he would become a movie maker who loves his cocktails and curses like a longshoreman. Well, that's the Garden of Eden, the forbidden fruit. <laughs> uh, whatever's forbidden becomes more desirable. And, you know, a dark theater with curtains that would part and this magic would happen on the screen became 
you know, much, much sexier and more enticing than had I gone to movies every <laughs> weekend as a kid. So that's the life lesson from the Old Testament that uh, be careful what you what you forbid, because it will become the object of desire. One thing that wasn't forbidden in Ron's childhood home was the worship of baseball. When his parents finally broke down and bought a TV, it was so they could watch the 1957 World Series. Ron grew up watching baseball and playing it. Rather well, in fact. He was on his college team, and when he graduated, he was offered a minor league contract with the Baltimore Orioles. $500 a month, plus an extra $3 a day for food. He signed the contract at 10 o'clock at night at LAX, and then he boarded three red-eye connecting flights to Bluefield, West Virginia. He was going to play ball in the Appalachian League. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your experience in the minors. I think you played five seasons. And sort of the minors as, as a phenomenon. I mean, I, one of the things that's interesting to me that I found myself thinking about a lot as I read the book is that, you know, on the one hand, when you're playing in the minor leagues, it's the dream. I mean, you are getting paid to play a game that you love. On the other hand, there's almost a purgatory element to it, right? It's, it's for a lot, of, a lot of players, it's this waypoint on the way to the bigger dream, which is making it to the show, making it to the majors. You know, no one wants to spend their whole career, so far as I know, playing in the minors. Talk a little bit about that tension. You know, on the one hand, you're getting to live the dream, you're playing the game. And on the other hand, there's something precarious about it. There's something liminal about it. And you look around and you think, well, am I, am I going to make it through to the next phase, which is the phase I really dream about, the phase of turning pro and going to the show? You are pro. Let me. Yeah, you are pro. You are pro. That's right. I got a weekly check. It wasn't large, but I came from the Orioles. It's that tension you talk about, which makes you alive. I have to produce every day or I will be gone. <laughs> I mean, it's, right. it's, it's also very unforgiving and it's also highly competitive. And there's something about baseball where everything you do is written in a record book forever and ever. It's very Old Testament like that, you know. You know, you can look up all my records right now. Yeah, please. I did. Right. You go on baseballreference.com and there's uh -huh. every single play. It's, it's astonishing. So... Uh, it is that tension that makes you feel so much alive. And it's too much pressure for a lot of young men who are really boys becoming men. Mm. You also, you know, what, one out of 500 who sign make it to the big leagues or something? I mean, it's very, very difficult to get to the big leagues. Maybe it's less than that now because there's more teams. But, you know, you start at the bottom and you work your way all the way, in my case, to the top of the minor leagues in AAA Rochester, New York, in the International League. And you can just see the promised land. It is a, another Old Testament reference. I mean, you mm. are looking into Canaan mm. <laughs> and you may not get there. But uh, I, I wouldn't have traded the experience for anything in the world. It certainly prepares you to do anything. Mm. It toughens you up and opens your mind at the same time. Nothing is handed you. You earn it. It is as close to a meritocracy as we have, if you think mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, there are biases and corporate biases and bad decisions. But if you can hit and field and throw and catch, you've got a chance. I mentioned that you can go online and look up Ron's old stats. He played five seasons in the minors, 469 games, 
1,691 at-bats, 425 hits, 192 strikeouts, 29 times he was hit by a pitch, and four times he was intentionally walked. He maintained a 251 batting average and one year co-led the California League in doubles. He was good, but never great. Just before the start of the 72 season, he got a call from the Orioles' front office. Were they sending him up to the big leagues? No, they were trading him to the Toledo Mud Hens. I was married, I had a baby, I drug everybody all over the country. I decided it was time to walk away and go back to school, which is what I did. Then he spent 15 years trying to figure out what his life was without baseball. Working odd jobs, painting houses, digging ditches. A friend of mine said, who just read the book, he says, Ron, how could you not talk about some of those other jobs you had? And I said, <laughs> like what? He said, well, you're the Easter rabbit at a mall in Tucson. Somehow, by the early 80s, he'd made it out to Hollywood, managed to write a few screenplays and get them made. He wrote a movie called Under Fire, which starred Gene Hackman, and another called The Best of Times with Robin Williams. Based on my track record of never having written a financially successful movie, I'm quoting him here, buoyed by generally polarized critical response to what I'd done already and determined not to paint houses again, I declared I was ready to direct. Crickets. But okay, no problem. He figured he just had to tell the town what the movie he was planning to direct was all about. Except he didn't have a script. He didn't even have an idea. But Ron is of the write-what-you-know school. So he quickly came up with an answer. Minor League Baseball. And when he made that announcement, instead of crickets, he got a meeting. And with a hotshot producer, no less. But he still didn't have a story. Not even when he walked into the producer's office. I wish I could pitch things like that today, because that's sort of how I start and how I approach with this a couple of loose ideas that seem to be in conflict. That's where I start. You need the conflicts or you have nothing. When, and I always was intrigued with the play uh, Lysistrata by Aristophanes, the Greek comedy, really satire, in which the women withhold their sexual favors until the men decide to stop going to war. And I thought, let me put that in the minor leagues. I didn't know what that meant. Lysistrata mm. in the minor leagues. But it seemed like a good idea. It seemed like an interesting idea. As long as nobody grilled me or <laughs> about what the hell I was talking about. But, you know, sex and athletic performance and competition and the men and women of, of that, that exist in that world, young and needy and desperate and hungry and uh, living in that world of tension you talked about. Mm -hmm. So I said, Lysistrata in the minor leagues. And he didn't blanch. And he said, do you have anything else? And I said, I knew it had to be about a pitcher and a catcher mm -hmm. because th there's the only two players with connected, synergistic relationship. You couldn't make a mm -hmm. baseball story about a left fielder and a first baseman who never speaks. So pitcher and catcher is an interesting dynamic. And the one thing I had a sense of as I walked into the office was, well, what if the woman tells the story? Because I had the idea for this woman. And so I said, the woman will be sleeping with the wrong one, and she's going to tell the story. And that was completely the pitch. I had nothing else. And he said, I love it. Go write it. 
I mean, it's amazing on so many levels. For one, it's amazing that you found a film producer who knew what Lysistrata was. That's Um, impossible in Hollywood, trust me. If that pitch meeting was a high, the car ride home was a come down. Ron had sold a movie, but he still had to figure out what exactly he'd sold. And as he worked it over in his mind, Lysistrata in the minor leagues, Lysistrata in the minor leagues, he was visited by a worrying thought. It was 1987, Ron had been away from baseball for 15 years, and in all that time, he hadn't kept up with the sport. He hadn't gone to a game, wasn't watching it on TV. It was too painful, a reminder of what could have been. But now he wondered, what if I've lost touch? What if the minor leagues aren't anything like I remember? He was gonna have to find out. So he flew to Durham, North Carolina, and bought a ticket to see the hometown team, the Durham Bulls. From the moment he walked into the rickety stadium. I was delighted to discover the minor leagues hadn't changed a bit. Players were still living in that world of tension and uh, stress and need to perform. And am I going to be on the team tomorrow? But since the ballparks were still smaller and intimate, players were sending notes to the girls. The girls were sending notes to the guys. and It hadn't changed. Ron soaked it all in. He found a copy of the Carolina League record book and started flipping through it. A name stopped him dead in his tracks. Lawrence Crash Davis. Crash Davis. It was the best baseball name Ron had ever heard. In fact, it was the perfect name for a character he hadn't invented yet. The catcher in his unwritten screenplay. In The Church of Baseball, he writes, I started to feel comfortable knowing I had one of my principal characters, even if it was just a name. Names matter. Crash Davis felt like someone I knew, someone I could write. He felt a little like me. The next character he needed to name was his pitcher, and that name fell into his lap too. He was at dinner a few nights later, and this sweet, youthful waiter came over and said, Hi there, I'm Ebby Calvin LaRouche, but you can call me Nuke. Ebby Calvin Nuke LaRouche. Pretty good. Ebby Calvin Nuke LaRouche? Even better. I may not have had a story, Ron writes, but I had a pitcher and a catcher. And they even had good, solid baseball names. Now all he needed was the woman, the movie storyteller, his Lysistrata. I need to hear a character talk. I need to hear what their voice is before I can really write them. And I tend to talk to myself when I'm alone and when I'm in the car and when I'm walking around. I kind of knew Crash and Nuke in my head because I knew the archetypes, but who was she? And I had this micro disc recorder and I just said, I believe in the Church of Baseball. I was driving the back road from Durham to Asheville. Now, Asheville is the home of Thomas Wolfe, but it was also the home of the oldest wooden ballpark in America that I was dying to see. It's up in the hills and it's a fabulous little place. And I went, was driving, staying off the interstate, and I believe in the Church of Baseball. A few miles later, I'm thinking of all these women I knew from the 60s and early 70s, and, and their searches of trying things, always always trying to make more sense of things and of the world. And that's where the line, I've worshipped all the major religions and most of the minor ones, you know, Vishnu, Brahma, whatever the, I don't have it in front of me. And 
And then Isadora I put Duncan. Down, Isadora Duncan, yeah. And then I put down the diskette recorder and kept driving. I was looking for the, where the site of Black Mountain College, which had, was long since abandoned, but where all those legendary cutting-edge artists taught and, and attended. And by the time I got to Asheville, I had the monologue written. And I went to a couple of ball games, And then I, back in L.A., a couple of months later, I pulled out the recorder and I said, what was that thing I dictated? Well, maybe a month later, because I had to write the script and I still didn't know what it was. And I, I typed in the whole monologue. I believe in the Church of Baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones. I've worshipped Buddha, Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, trees, mushrooms, and Isadora Duncan. I know things. For instance, there are 108 beads in a Catholic rosary and there are 108 stitches in a baseball. When I learned that, I gave Jesus a chance. But it just didn't work out between us. The Lord laid too much guilt on me. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball, and it's never boring, which makes it like sex. There's never been a ball player slept with me who didn't have the best year of his career. Making love is like hitting a baseball. You just gotta relax and concentrate. Then I basically wrote the rest of the script, <laughs> to be honest, without a plan, without an outline. Well, it was kind of marvelous when you described that. I think anyone who's ever gone to the screenwriting how-to section of their local bookstore can find 150 titles that have advice like, you know, on page three of the screenplay, you must state your theme. And on page 15, you have to break into the second act. And on page 30, this needs to happen and that... And that's not at all, that, that's so kind of doctrinaire and that's not at all how you made this film. You just kind of went by feel, you trusted your instincts and you just kind of took it one beat at a time. What needs to happen next? Where can this go? Well, I wrote White Men Can't Jump Without an Outline. I just started writing it. I wrote Ten Cup Without an Outline uh, with, with my writing partner on Ten Cup. Look, I, I don't, but I think most of those how-to books, I can't even figure out them. I, I mean, I tried to read one because... One of the guys wanted me to write the, the intro to it, and I said I can't do it because I don't I don't understand this. Uh, if I was teaching a screenwriting class, I, I would teach three or four basic rules and then say go break them. But it is engineering in the sense that building a building is engineering. And I was a, right. I talk I talk about load bearing walls of a of a of a narrative in, in a screenplay in the book, and the load bearing wall. If you've ever tried to, uh, you know, uh, have uh, alterations made to your house and you call in the architect and say, I'd like to move this kitchen wall four feet. And they said, the whole house will fall in. That's a load-bearing wall. Well, what walls can I move? What walls can I move? There, That's how I think of telling a story. Um, mm -hmm. There are certain things that ha you have to have kind of in the right place and if you do, you can do anything you want. So it, it just, I, I keep it, keep the rules simple. Who cares what happens on a page? I think audiences today, because of the internet, because of smartphones, because of the digital universe, have shorter attention spans, especially younger people. I don't think that can be argued. So what do you do about that? Well, you just front load the information a little earlier in the story, but that's what Shakespeare did. It's right. not a new idea. 
I mean, Shakespeare would have somebody walk out and say, now is the winner of our discontent, or there's two families, they hate each other, but the boy, boy and the girl like each other. I mean, <laughs> just give me the setup. The setup's mm-hmm. critical. And I give you a setup in Bull Durham, and it takes the first act, which is about 25 pages to play out. It's all in the first five hours. It's from her going to the ballpark at 6.30 in the evening, you know, finishing her makeup, to having two guys on her couch at 11 o'clock that night, and, and the wrong one goes home. <laughs> That's the setup. It seems like the, the Ron Shelton School of Screenwriting is just relax and concentrate. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'll take that. Ron sent the script to his producer, expecting pages and pages of notes. But the producer had just two things to say. I love it, and let's make it. So now Ron had to cast it. And right away, he had an idea for who he thought should play Crash. An up-and-comer named Kevin Costner. He'd been in a couple movies, none of them big hits, but he had buzz. And best of all, rumor had it he could play baseball. So Ron met him for lunch, where Costner ordered them a few vodkas, and then said he'd like the script and wanted to audition. Ron told him there was no need. If he wanted the role, it was his. No, Costner said. I want you to see if I can play baseball well enough. Both of them, it turned out, kept a ball and a glove in the trunks of their car. Because who doesn't, right? So they downed their vodkas, drove to the valley, and played catch in a parking lot. Ron says you just need to see one catch and one throw to know if someone can play. Costner could play. The role was his. Next, Ron needed a nuke, and he found him in Tim Robbins. And then there was the woman at the center of the film, Annie. Ron had to fight the studio tooth and nail, but in the end, he got the actress he wanted, Susan Sarandon. The movie was cast, the financing came together. Now there was just one more thing Ron needed to do. He had to learn how to direct. I have friends in theater, and they were afraid that I was going to, I don't know what they're afraid of, but they thought, well, you've never really worked with actors. And I said, I'm pretty comfortable working with actors because I don't treat them like talking props like some directors. And I have to hand them my words and encourage them to show me things I don't know about them. But my, my friends were saying, look, at Ron, you can't use action verbs when you talk to, and I, I don't even know what an action verb is. What's an, you, you can't say energy, please, energy to the actor. I said, well, I would mm-hmm. never say that to a third baseman. What does that <laughs> right. mean? I'd say, keep your eye on the ball or you're pulling out your, your hip or you're, you know, he's throwing you first pitch fastballs, look for it. I would say a lot of things, but I would never say energy. It never occurred to me. So on the very beginning, we did a take with Susan. I can't remember the scene. And the first take was, I thought, pretty perfect. And I'm trying to think, oh, I got to say something, but I'm afraid I'm going to use an action verb. I, what is it? I don't know what an action verb is exactly. I have to look it up. And everybody's looking at me, the crew, camera people, the lighting people, the whole the wardrobe people, and Susan. And she finally says, it's okay, hon. I didn't go to film school either. You can just say, you know, louder, softer, faster, slower. And so I said, Oh, how about louder, faster? And uh, I thought I can talk like regular people to regular people. And the actors are so happy to have that and not the nonsense that some directors lay on them. 
relax, and concentrate. There's an essay I've always loved called Writing for the Movies. It's by this writer from Brooklyn named Daniel Fuchs, who, in 1937, when he was 26 and had already published three novels, moved to Hollywood to become a screenwriter. And in the essay, he describes attending a test screening for one of his first films. The people would come gathering in the chill of the evening, he writes, drifting up to the theater, to the blaze of light, in their jeans and stiff cotton house dresses, their eyes wavering and uncertain. And yet, once they were inside the movie house, a transformation occurred. In the dark, forming a mass, they lost their disabilities and insufficiencies. They became larger than themselves. A separate entity appeared, an entity that was knowing and complete. No matter how deeply probing or delicate and sophisticated the treatment, if the picture was good, they were unfailingly affected by it and gave it its full measure of appreciation. I witnessed it again and again, so that I have now come to secretly believe that good pictures always command a mass audience. Bull Durham did not command a mass audience. Not initially, anyway. It was released in June 1988 and grossed just over $5 million on opening weekend, which put it fifth in the box office. But then something strange happened. The movie brought in more money at second weekend. And over the 28 weeks it remained in theaters, it made what today would equal about $130 million. In other words, the picture was good, and audiences did give it its full measure of appreciation. Critics, too. Roger Ebert called it a treasure of a movie. Ron was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. And even after that initial glow of attention faded, even after Ron went on to make other films and Kevin Costner went on to be a big-time star and Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins went on to fall in love, Bull Durham never disappeared. Its legacy can be seen in the small towns all across America that were inspired by the movie to build gleaming new ballparks for their minor league teams. Durham, North Carolina is one of those towns. The real-life Durham Bulls now play in a beautiful stadium smack dab in the middle of downtown. Ron visited not long ago to celebrate the film's 30th anniversary. And while he was there, he met two young boys, brothers. The older one was about 10. Ron asked him what his name was, and the boy said, I'm Crash. Ron looked over at the boy's younger brother and said, I'm afraid to ask. Yep, the kid replied, I'm Nuke. Names really do matter. Karina Longworth recently did an episode about Bull Durham on her podcast. You must remember this. I don't know if you've heard it. It's a good show. And she said, quote, for me, it's ultimately a film of deep melancholy about the difference between being at the beginning of your career and being at the end of it. It's about getting a second chance after you've become convinced you're past your prime. She's talking about Nuke and Crash, but when I heard that, I thought, wait, that's Ron making this movie, right? You were simultaneously making a movie that was evocative of the end of your own baseball career, and you're also at the beginning of a new career as a writer-director. Did you feel that way at all? Did you feel like you were sort of caught between these two worlds and therefore were, I don't know, there was a piece of you in Nuke and a piece of you in Crash because you related to both of those experiences? You had a piece of me and Annie and everybody and Jimmy and everybody. The 
I know I, I did see that piece and I like that piece, but I thought one thing I would add to that piece is there's also a joy in the game. Let's not forget that. The game is fun much of the time, excruciating other times, uh, which makes it a little like life, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that melancholy is always balanced with the joy and you're leaving a joy when you walk away, a joy that's hard to find again. And the only place mm-hmm. I ever found it again is on a movie set when things are clicking. Well, I want to let you go, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for this book, and thank you for uh, for Bull Durham. Well, thank you for your great questions, and I'm uh, happy to do it again someday if there's ever the occasion. Well, yeah, when you make that montage book, which is about those 15 years you spent as the <laughs> Easter Bunny, we'll, we'll have you back on. I, I was only the Easter Bunny for one year, but just the okay. A man has pride, you know. Thanks so much, Kev. That was Ron Shelton, writer and director of Bull Durham and author of The Church of Baseball. This is the last summer episode I'll be hosting. Thank you for going on this journey with me. If you enjoyed it, I'd be honored if you'd leave a review and a rating wherever you listen. Rufus will be back on mic for our fifth season, which begins on September 8th. And let me tell you, we've got some really great interviews lined up. Tony Fidel, the co-creator of the iPod and iPhone. Annie Duke, social scientist turned professional poker player turned social scientist again. Douglas Rushkoff, thorn in the side of billionaire bunker builders. It's going to be a great season. Our show today was written and produced by me, Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. We make the next big idea in partnership with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.